long before drag was a mainstay of reality television, LGBTQ plus folks turned to drag for fun to challenge society and explore their gender through an artistic, comedic, and performative lens. Sadly, we lost two fierce drag legends who meant a lot not just to us, but the world. Heartbreaking. In March, Jojo Baby died from cancer at the age of 51. An early guest of our podcast, Jojo was a beloved Chicago nightclub personality and entertainer who dazzled patrons with her outlandish looks and puppetry. And just last week, Hecklina, who shaped the modern drag scene in San Francisco with her wildly popular and irreverent tranny shack shows at the club stud, was found dead at the age of 55 in her London hotel room by her dear friend Peaches Christ. Today, we remember two queer culture legends. Chicago's Jojo Baby and San Francisco's Hecklina, who both died this past month, and the impact they had on so many people's lives, including ours. Plus, everybody's daddy, Pedro Pascal, plays a gay cowboy in Pedro Almodovar's western short, Strange Way of Life. Billy Porter is set to play novelist, activist, and essayist James Baldwin. And Equality Florida issues an advisory warning for LGBTQ plus travelers to the state of Florida. I'm Fausto Fernos. I'm Mark Fillion. And this is Feast of Fun. Uh, a little disclaimer, a lot of the humor and sensibility of these drag queens was irreverent, outrageous, and sometimes even rotten. It was oh, yeah. meant to deal with the AIDS crisis being marginalized people, living in communities where a lot of people came to them because they were kicked out of their families, they dropped out of high school, they never went to college, they were turning to drag and humor as a way of coping with things. And in order to best talk about those lives, we have to talk about their humor and their sensibility, which sometimes can be off-putting to people who don't know them and especially if they're mourning even if they did know them and stuff and you know a lot of people mm -hmm. i mean these great insult artists like bianca del rio lady bunny you know they're all they're they're hurting from from uh hecklina's death and you know you'd think they'd come out with joke after joke after joke at her expense but they really haven't because it's just it's it, in many ways it just feels like it's just too soon humor and comedy is meant to deal with crisis mm -hmm. And a lot of these drag queens throughout their careers in dealing with crisis has always been their wonderful sense of humor, their wicked sense of humor. So really right now, you know, the community's hurting, they are hurting, and we're hurting, and you can even hear it in our voices. I mean, there's so much on our plate that we haven't even been able to put up podcasts these last couple of weeks just in dealing with all kinds of crisis. Mm. But that ends now. <laughs> <laughs> People need each other. People need their friends. People need to celebrate life. And and that's what these two people, like Jojo and Hecklina specifically, were about. They they brought people together. They gathered people. They entertained groups of people. They had great groups of friends. They were about bringing folks together. And that's why people, I think, will remember them because they inspired them to create art. They inspired them to create community. I mean, really, you know, that's part of the reason I live in Chicago. I came from... Puerto Rico to Texas, got, went from Texas to Chicago. And one of the really key central figures in my life is Jojo Baby, Silky Jumbo and myself, who we all shared the same birthday, close around each other's birthdays, and would for years celebrate it together. And, you know, in the early days of our podcast, Hecklina was somebody who was a frequent guest and so turned on, turned us on to Peaches Christ and so many other wonderful people. And, you know, where would we be today without the contributions to our lives? So, you know, as much as the world is mourning, we're also personally mourning the loss of two dear friends. I think about like T.S. Eliot, that, that essay, that poem that we were all supposed to read in high school and college, <laughs> The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Yes. Do you remember what that was about or well i just remember the one line about april being the cruelest month i had an ex-boyfriend that used to uh quote that a lot april is the cruelest month so the wasteland is a poem by the great t.s Eliot. not just because he's the guy who did cats or right. inspired uh andrew lloyd Webber to and do cats not the musical a, he's not like t.s uh t.s 
<laughs> like it, a transgender sex worker. Or, yes, it's internet. not that. Yeah. T.S. Madison. I was like, I was like, T.S. Kind Madison. Of, and all the other T.S.'s out there. Yeah. The Wasteland is considered one of the most important poems of the 20th century and, and certainly a, a central work of modernist poetry. The Wasteland was about loss, about death, and dealing with the consequences of the great purge of the great war that at the time was World War I. T.S. Eliot starts his poem, his epic poem, saying that April is the cruelest month because counterintuitively, April is associated with a spring. It's with life, but actually he associates it with death because after winter's comforting blanket, spring's new life, the color in the landscape throws people's ongoing depression into stark relief and forces painful memories to surface. And so the death of these iconic artists is in many ways in stark contrast to the drag that they embodied. Brutally real, theatrical, personal, heartbreaking, and at times ridiculous. And now they have to live inside us and we have to pay tribute to their lives by continuing their work and their legacy. How did you get to know Jojo? I just, he went, hi, I'm Jojo. <laughs> What's my name? It's Jojo. What's yours? Uh, you know, we, uh, in Chicago, we, uh, I was actually walking home in the rain in on my bicycle. Cause I was like, I'm going to get in shape and I'm going to ride my bicycle. And I was lost and on the lakefront and it was, it was pouring rain and it was a full moon and I got underneath a bridge and there were all these like cute pagan hippie guys drumming around and it was the radical fairies. And I was like, that's how you met the radical fairies. Yes. I was literally lost like in the woods. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I found them in the woods and it was really um, a magical moment for me because I felt like I was like, well, I don't really fit into Chicago. I'm lost. I don't have my tribe. I'm just going to leave this town. And I found them. And, and for me, it was like, you know, it awakened a lot of desires. It, it, it helped, uh, you know, put into words and in direction of what I wanted to do artistically and creatively and working with queer people to make entertainment and, and performance mm -hmm. and sculpture and art. And in that tribe was Jojo baby, you know, who at the time was just known as Jojo and Jojo uh, was a protege of the great artist queer Greer Langton, who was known for her uh, doll making abilities and, and skills, but she also built the first big bird mm -hmm. for Jim Henson's work. And she was kind of like uncredited for that, yeah, right? Because yeah. she was, uh, you know, mm -hmm. she was trans. And I think that they, they tried to marginalize her because of her transness. Yeah. And so, you know, Jojo never let you forget that Greer Langton built the first big well, bird. And, you know, and, and Greer <laughs> isn't a very accomplished yeah. artist. You know, yeah. if you go to the Andy Warhol, I mean, they built a whole museum for Andy Warhol. And within Andy Warhol's museum is Greer's studio. They reproduced her studio, and you, which you can look at. You look through a little window, and you see her studio. So, I mean, Andy and Andy's people held Greer in very, very high regard. Right. And it's uh, it's amazing that uh, uh, Jojo was able to be her protege. Yeah, and, and you know, Jojo was somebody who also was kind of lost, and and the Chicago nightclub scene was a sanctuary for mm -hmm. him for them at the time, identified as male, and then later on was non-binary. And, you know, a lot, and I was kind of, when we went to JoJo's memorial service this past Sunday, I was really stricken by how much JoJo's scene reflected JoJo to the point that, like, I saw five or six people walking around who looked like JoJo. And I was, like, spooked by it because I was like, <laughs> the dead shall rise. There were ghosts of JoJo. There were ghosts of JoJo. And some people paid tribute to JoJo by dressing up in JoJo's iconic mm -hmm. looks of that demented clown mm -hmm. and, you know, well, paying tribute to Keith Haring and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's it was interesting that a lot of these people, these club kids, were kids, were children that were kicked out of their homes, had to drop out of high school, were very much at odds with the world and, and very much marginalized. And the nightclub scene and the and the creative scene that JoJo was a big part of was a place where not only they were safe, 
but they were able to make a living and survive. Mm-hmm. Well, you hear that, uh, you know, you talk to enough uh, queer people, especially people of like, you know, Latinos here in Chicago uh, from that era is, you know, they'd start going out as queer teenagers, 14, 15 years old, and they would stay out all night. And then their parents were just like, if you're old enough to stay out all night, you're old enough to be on your own. And so a lot of them would be like living five, six, you know, teenage kids in an apartment, and somewhere in Lakeview, or Boys Town, that area, back then, you know, you could probably get a little apartment for a few hundred dollars. And if everybody chipped in 50 bucks, you'd have a place to stay. Now it's a lot harder for homeless LGBT youth because of the cost of everything and credit scores and all that kind of thing. And so he was just hanging out like in clubs and Bird Bardot took him under his wing. And, and Bird Bardot was sort of one of the first club kids. And in so, town. Bird, yeah, was one of the first club and was a contemporary of Michael Alex. So Michael Alec came from South Bend, was here in Chicago. Bird Bardot, Michael Alec from Party Monster, uh, and, and JoJo were all of that same era. And then Michael went to New York and then grew into the big Party Monster. So to explain people who Michael Alec mm-hmm. is, uh, he's do- featured in the documentary and the film Party Monster mm-hmm. by World of Wonder yeah. that chronicles this uh, club entertainer, highly influential club entertainer and nightclub mm-hmm. kid who murdered brutally his drug dealer mm-hmm. and the the consequences of that and how it sort of uh, destroyed the club scene in New York. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have that here in Chicago. So that club scene still to this day mm-hmm. echoes and continues. But we did have like on the, on the podcast, Rachel Kane, who uh, was involved in the club scene back then and is involved in house music. Um, and she was with Michael Alec here in Chicago and they were trying, she remembers telling us this, this story that she was trying to get into a club with Bird or with Michael Alec and Bird Bardot was walking, working the door and he's just like, I can't let you in. They're like, why? And she's like, everybody's saying you murdered Angel. And and Rachel, like, this is the first time she said she had heard it. She was just like, what? I can imagine you know? Rachel being like, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> I don't know. But um, yeah. And so, I mean, it just uh, that kind of like that kind of imploded that scene there in New York. Yeah, New York and other people it. say, you know, it was a combination of that. It was a, a combination of Giuliani uh, and the Rudy mayor Giuliani. and the mayor before him. I believe like clamping down on the nightclub scene, all of that stuff just kind of like. Uh, bars closing, the big things like limelight and whatnot really killed like nightlife in New York. Well, Hecklina and JoJo are part of a generation mm-hmm. that had the money and the time yeah. to be able to be mm-hmm. creative and explore themselves mm-hmm. in nightclub events. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, I met JoJo when I, I was at Red Door one night. Uh, Boom Boom Room was his big night. And he, he, I, he would work the door and he walked up to me. He's like, can I have your email address to invite you to the next party? Email? What's that? <laughs> it was in 1996. Well, it was 1996. That I got uh, on a lot of people didn't email, have address. email addresses. No, so. no, no. Yeah. But uh, you know, but I, he always, they were always very good to us. I'm sorry about the, the you know, sometimes everybody that spoke about J, uh, JoJo at the memorial referred to him as he. This is really difficult to it's, talk about. It is hard because it's like you know they were non-binary, but they were also you know in many ways very very male. How was JoJo male? Well, you know, JoJo male energy. JoJo had male energy. Uh, I mean, he presented, you know, he could do drag, but he also like later in life, he really embraced that masculine kind of drag. He had that long, big beard. He would go out as an old man or sometimes after he shaved as an old lady. It was really incredible. And he had like that. um, I don't know, that male sexual energy, too. He made a lot of penises. He was always casting people's penises or he was asking people, like, can I cast your penis? Can I take a photo of your penis? He's got a photo of my penis. Uh, There's a photo (laughs) of us uh, sucking each other's dicks. No, you're sucking my dick. Well, yeah, I'm sucking your dick and we're dressed up as Star Trek um, ensigns. Mm -hmm. And we were at a when it was actually one of my birthday parties. And Jojo had his uh, Polaroid camera and came up to us and was like, Hey, can I take a picture of you guys sucking each other's dicks? <laughs> and we went to the bathroom and we took these pictures. Bedroom. And, and uh, was it the bedroom? It was the bedroom. And JoJo had, held on to them for quite some time. But then I, I was at JoJo's place and I, years later, and took pictures of them and sent them to George Takei. 
And he was like, oh, my, Mark Fausto, thank you so much for the delightful photos. Even like the straight guy I was working with, I, I told him about uh, JoJo's passing. He's like, yeah, I know him. I used to walk by like after I come home from the bars, he'd be hanging outside of his studio and he'd be like, hey, come in. Can I draw your penis? <laughs> and, you know, it was a clever thing, gimmick. It yeah. was a clever gimmick. But, you know, he had just like that. He was inviting and he was and there was a sweetness to him. Mm-hmm. So it was and it always seemed it wasn't. It didn't feel creepy. Well, JoJo did ask me uh, to cast my penis. So at the time when he was just getting started, they were getting started Mm -hmm. doing the the whole penis casting to make sculptures with plaster Mm -hmm. penises. And I was like, JoJo, I I love you as a friend. I just feel really nervous if something goes wrong because I've done casting and stuff. Would you think your dick was going to get stuck? What can get stuck? It, it um it the plaster heats up and can burn you. It's like bad things can happen if you don't know what you're doing. Mm. And you know, but he learned from the best. Yeah, they, they learned, learned from, from the best. best. They uh-huh. learned from uh, Cynthia yeah. Plastercaster. I understand that, but things who, can go and wrong. And for people who don't know who Cynthia Plastercaster, Cynthia, Cynthia, Cynthia Plastercaster, yeah. she she plas- uh-huh. she casted a lot of rock and roll stars' cocks. Jimi Hendrix, most famously, yeah, yeah. most famously, and. Yeah. And and so, you know, I said, well, wh- why don't we try something else? And so JoJo shaved my belly button and cast a, a little pillow out of my belly button and um. made kind of like a cushions out of men's belly button so he could rest their head. His, their head. It's really hard to talk about non-binary people, especially when their gender pronouns change through time a lot. Um, and... And JoJo rested their head on these pillows made out of men's belly buttons. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where am I? And, and he and JoJo at the time, he pointed to the little pillow and said, this is you. Oh. And it'll always be there. And, you know, so in a lot of ways, I mean, I, I just feel so heartbroken when I saw the news. And I knew that JoJo's health was bad and JoJo was struggling with cancer. I remember when JoJo had... Uh, testicular cancer and yeah he got he, i think i ran yeah. into him and uh, i was in wicker park and he was you know it was great because the back of the day you just run into people and mm-hmm. he was just in his window you know like a spanish lady looking out on the street looking like he should have been wearing a mantilla or something and he's just like hey i'm like hey he's like come on up there, so he yeah, comes to yeah, yeah. I, I, you know they come down open on the door and he's just like oh i just i've just been going through it. i'm like oh what's going on he's just like well i went to the doctor and i got syphilis hiv and testicular cancer it's like the trifecta all at once and i was just like oh damn and so he had and no health care and no health care because artists you right in chicago well this is america you know, you know we don't give people health care and um, so it's you know and so with JoJo's struggles, uh, you know, a lot of people felt like JoJo's life was hanging by a thread there at, the, at that time. You know, JoJo also was first thrusted in the national spotlight by doing Dennis Rodman's hair. I don't know if you remember that. In fact, you and I met, my hair was looking, a lot of our hair actually was clipped short, bleached, and then done rainbow colors and leopard prints and animal mm-hmm. prints and stuff like that. So we all kind of people in our scene, we all look like, you know, care bears, but even more wild and mm-hmm. technicolor. And Dennis Rodman, who at that time was a queer icon for saying for hanging out with uh, Mimi Marks at Red Dog, which is a nightclub. Mm-hmm. Mimi Marks is a transgender crowbar. Uh, entertainer and at Crowbar as well. Uh, you know, Dennis Rodman was uh, at one time showed up in drag and married them himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, you know, later on, Dennis Rodman kind of went off the rails. But <laughs> at that time, you know, Dennis Rodman was really an important figure to queer liberation. And and Jojo gave Dennis that that tr- signature look. Mm-hmm. And, and Dennis Rodman would come into Emilio's hair salon and get his head hair done by Jojo. And so the whole world was like, who is this Jojo? Who's mm-hmm. this, this person who's making their hair? Mm-hmm. And then later on, uh, Jojo made the evening news when shopping for skull for, I'm sorry, for mannequin body parts on eBay met somebody and they're like, Oh, I have some in the basement. And, jo- and so Jojo went to this guy's house 
and was alone in the kitchen and there was a pot of something that Jojo thought it was a stew boiling on the stove and they opened the lid, looked inside and a skull came rolling up with their eyes and the flesh hanging off of it. And Jojo's just very quietly. Partial of flesh. Put the, put the lid back on, goes into this man's basement <laughs> to, to look get at mannequin mannequins. parts because it was art was so important. It was so hard to get mannequin parts. When you had a good mannequin, you could build a good costume and so on. Those are the times we were living. Well, in. you know, you work in Chicago nightlife, you see a lot of weird stuff. So me, a skull on the pot doesn't seem really weird, but then Jojo goes back and tells their friend about it, and their friend is like, uh, you should call the police. And so it, it kind of became a bit of a thing. I guess it escalated. It yeah. escalated. And I guess you can own a human skull. Uh, they're actually imported from China quite often and people buy them and um, they sometimes the flesh isn't completely off so they have to boil them, Damn. get the flesh off and uh, people make carvings. They carve into the skull. It's not something I personally would own but like Weird. It's pretty gruesome. And then also two yeah. people are like, where are these heads coming from? Because then there's like, you know, are these people from China? Are they, are they, like, where did those come from? Are they are political they, are they prisoners? Political prisoners yeah. Who were like, there's a lot of, there was a lot of stuff going on. A lot of shadiness. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so the, you know, Jojo was on the evening news and we, one of our most celebrated and downloaded podcasts of the time was Jojo finds a skull, mm -hmm. a Jojo baby. And so, uh, I, at some point in time, Jojo changed their name, last name, to from the name that the family used to Jojo Baby. Mm -hmm. And so the evening news referred to Jojo as Mr. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> you would always do that. Mr. Baby, party of one. Mr. Baby, paging Mr. Baby, mm -hmm. Mr. Baby to the front desk. Mm. And Jojo wore a T-shirt that said, Taste of Chicago, with an arrow pointed towards their groin. And it made it at the six o'clock news and the eight o'clock news, but then it was blurred later on mm -hmm. in subsequent mm -hmm. airings of that. And, you know, and Jojo was somebody who did this not because there was um, glory or money. Uh, Jojo made these dolls and sewed. Uh, Jojo collected emeralds and sewed them into the, the doll's hearts because at, in some degree, Jojo felt like the dolls were alive. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, he would do different kinds of gems. Well, he was kind of into voodoo. I think Greer also did that as well. Yeah. But Jojo was also into voodoo to a certain degree. And this is why I've been thinking about a lot because I remember uh, being in a studio and looking at some of the stuff. He's just like, these are my tributes to like to crossroad demons. And I, at the time, I didn't really understand what a crossroad demon was. Uh, but it's part of like a voodoo culture. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's the devil. So you're coming across a moment in your life, a crossroad, a decision has to be made and there is a demon there and it's either this way or that way. And you know, in some ways, you're going to pay a price in either way. And I think about, you know, uh, and, and Jojo in a way kind of thought of himself a little bit, I think of as that crossroads devil, especially when you look at Chicago and we're known as like the crossroads of America. You know, Chicago is a community and the queer people here love and celebrate Jojo, but also too, that community is not just the people here in Chicago. There's so many people that have come in through this city and have left the city. Uh, there's people that probably on their first night of ever being in Chicago went to a club and saw Jojo there, or it may have been their last hooray going leaving town, and Jojo was one of the last people that they saw. They encountered so many different types of people, so many walks of life, and was able to just kind of like, hi. Well, Michael Alec got their start in, in Chicago and then went to New York and, and all hell broke loose over there. He's his own demon. Right. And, and so, you know, those demons um, and Jojo was there looking at devils and angels mm -hmm. in the face and able to entertain all kinds of wildly different people and treating no matter kings and queens, mm -hmm. uh, paupers and peasants as equals. I mean, he did parties for billionaires. Yeah. Like was, Madonna says, like, music makes the people come together where the bourgeois and the rebels. And, you know, Jojo was the embodiment of those lyrics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Clive Barker, the, the, the famous horror, uh, filmmaker. Horror, horror filmmaker, really took an interest in Jojo Baby and made a documentary on him called Jojo Baby. It came out in 2010 and it's available to watch if you'd like to find out more about him. 
Yeah. And, and you know, in going to the, you know, and through, through the course of the years, you know, we saw um, Chicago's drag community get transformed uh, along with the influence of the pageant systems and RuPaul's Drag Race. The nightclub scene started uh, bringing in a lot of other people who are not necessarily, you know, saw themselves as artists or countercultural figures, but they were doing this as in some ways cynically as a as a way to uh, to make money. And, you know, and, and, and I, and sadly, I think it pushed some really great people out of the way. And, you know, in, in terms of like the impact that Jojo had on their scene, um, you know, Jojo influenced their styles, their looks, their, their creativity. And to this day, you know, going to Jojo's memorial service, you can see that so many people looked up to Jojo Mm -hmm. In, not just in terms of, you know, costume, but in everyday life. Mm. And so the way they pierce themselves, the way they tattoo themselves, the way they cut their hair was, you know, to their hero, Jojo. Mm-hmm. You know, going to the memorial, tea, memorial, you saw people from, like you said, different walks of life. We ran into our neighbor, Eric, who was there. And I, Eric, mm-hmm. you may remember from the podcast, who's the guy who saw the dick in the locker room. <laughs> there, was, there was a penis in the locker room, and, and it, was, it was hard. It was looking at me. But then he also has gone on to make a, a music documentary. But he went to he went to school with Jojo. They Jojo's boyfriend wanted to do improv, so Jojo's like, hey, I'll, I'll do that. So they studied together at Second city i'm like wait a second jojo studied improv to my knowledge jojo actually did put together an audition tape and did submit it to rupaul's drag race Mm. and that's the thing that bothers me of like like the greatest entertainers of our time heckelina put an audition according to my knowledge lady red couture and jojo could have been contestants on rupaul's drag race Mm. but that you know instead they got for better for worse these other people and, you know, and, and, and the rest is herstory, mm. you know, it, it, it's to me, it's really important to think about death as a transformation, because what was once a ubiquitous part of our everyday lives is no more. It's mm-hmm. changing. Young mm-hmm. people are not as eager to go out to clubs and get drunk. Um, people drew drag for all kinds of reasons and drag is under attack. You know, the, in Florida, they passed the anti-drag laws. It's part of Tennessee's laws. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do rock. A lot of these places are not going to be able to do Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. Well, anymore. just in 2015, they still had yeah. laws in the books in Chicago here that listed drag as adult entertainment. And so when the lips opened up, they had to get those. The, they had to get that change because otherwise it would be like putting up a strip club. Because yeah. people just profoundly, you know, don't understand. Don't understand drag. drag is, you know. It's clowning. It's clownery. It's fun. That's yeah. why part of the reason we named this podcast Feast of Fun yeah. um, and Feast of Fools was mm-hmm. was in uh, indifference and an acknowledgement to those essential mm-hmm. aspects of drag. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in the early, you know, when Jojo, when we were doing musical variety shows under Feast of Fools, Jojo was somebody who had put all these elaborate performances together um, with marionettes and come to the stage and the the. The, and during the rehearsal was fine, and he comes onto the stage, and all the, the wires, the strings are all tangled, and Joe just stands there, just frustrated, and just slams them down and walks off. Uh, people and like, people are that, like, "Is yeah. that supposed to be?" <laughs> They're like, "Sure, sure." I think one of my favorite performances is a, a, a thing you wrote for him, and it was basically it was. To Green the acres. theme of Green Acres, yes. but she was a rich woman who was going to come into Wicker Park, which was the neighborhood where he was. They the were. Vi- li- it's the, the village vill- of Chicago. The yeah. village of Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the, where Jojo was living at the time, and basically saying, "I'm going to buy all this up and force all the artists out." And you know, it happened. <laughs> so instead of like Green Acres is the place to be, she was like. Wicker Park is where I want to live. Maybe my neighbors will be cute and gay. Flats and apartments so big and wide. Investment properties making money. I can't remember the exact lyrics, but it was like. And so the plot was because we had gotten gentrified, all the characters in the Feast of Fools had to move to the mountains of Tennessee oh. to sur- to survive. Oh. <laughs> so and, and now you, know, you can't even go to Tennessee. You can't go to Tennessee either. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, the, you know, Jojo also did a, a, a wonderful lip sync with Silky Jumbo. And uh, this there was this little um, person whose name escapes me. Oh, what was her name? Remy? Rent, uh, and they were recreating the scene from Valley of the Dolls where Broadway doesn't go for booze or dope. And in, in the film, Patty Duke rips off the wig of the Broadway star and flushes it down the toilet. And then she puts the wig back on her head and says, may I f- you know, find you a, a discreet exit? And she's like, no, I'll come out the same way I came in through the front door. And Jojo really brilliantly made two wigs Mm -hmm. and one of them was wig covered in toilet paper and poop. (laughs) 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 So when they, and they did this really quickly, you know, on the stage and managed to, you know, so when Jojo's wig gets ripped off, there was another wig underneath that was like a clown wig. And I saw Jojo working on it backstage. I was like, this is not going to work out. This is going to be a hot. You're mess. always a disbeliever. Me? I yeah. always? You have no faith in people sometimes. Uh, if I didn't have faith in that, <laughs> I would have worked so hard to cast Jojo okay. on the show. Um, and so I was like, this seems really hard because it was a cheap ass clown wig. Like it was like, bar- like when well, you yeah, cut it was the hair. In a toilet. When you cut the hair of a Barbie doll, you can see yeah. the plugs, you know, yeah. <laughs> that was like red hair. And I was like, what is she doing with that? You know? So. When they ripped off the wig, you know, because it was this very beautiful, stylized pageant hair, and underneath is this clown wig with Barbie doll plugs underneath it. It was so funny. Mm. And you're howling at the wig that's underneath it, right? Then she gets the poop-covered wig, and everybody was just, like, in hysterics. You could not console the crowd. Everybody was laughing so hard. And, you know, and, and from there on, um, uh, Jojo then turned to sculpting and and uh, and making, you know, sculptures out of guys, dicks and belly buttons. And and, you know, then dealing with one crisis after another of, of, of dealing with cancer. And so, you know, Jojo's last year was really dealing with the cancer that had spread to a lot of parts of their body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the last you know days of Jojo was spent in in. Um, in assistance in hospice in hospice right and and his friends and uh, friends and family close friends and family were around him yeah, yeah. and you know and that's pretty much and from what i understand too yeah. is like uh, you know um he uh, i'm sorry they, uh, they mm-hmm. will be laid to rest with their mother on the, the a native reservation uh, a na- uh up north in wisconsin i i, I assume it's the ojibwe nation Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if it is Ojibwe. I'm not sure if there's another nation up there that they're going to. Because his mother w- uh, was Native American. And then his father was Latino and Greek. Mm. So people always be like, you know, what is Jojo exactly? And, and JJ and their, mm-hmm. the three brothers, uh, the three siblings. Um, and because depending on the time of day and the day of the week, you would get a different answer. They were Native American or they were Greek or they were Latino. And it was all three. Mm. And, you know, and, and, and people, when people die, like it's always a tragedy and, and they want to ask like, what, what happened? Why, why did this happen? Not necessarily because they, you know, they're important, they're concerned about other people's health, but they're also like worried that it might happen to them. Mm. So it's really important that when we talk about people who have died, especially young and unexpectedly that we don't go being like, what did you do that we blame mm-hmm. the the person who died or the person who's suffering from, you know, making poor choices right. or something like that? Well, we have to be also very, very clear is that the queer people, people of color have, uh, you know, there's there's a health uh Inequity, a disparity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. between people who have money and health, who have insurance, and those who, those who who do not. And among queer people, uh, queer people tend to die at a much younger uh, age than than straight people because of you know access to uh, health care and HIV and other things. And you know, I would say that you know, with Heckelina's death, who shocked everybody, uh, she was found dead last Monday in her hotel room in London, England, before doing a production of Mommy Queerist with mm-hmm. Peaches Christ. Yeah. Peaches, uh, was, I guess, was sharing the, the it suite. It must have been a suite or something. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like she like was like, 
where are you? You know, right. like broke she down the door. into the living room and then I guess from a face, body. from a, I haven't talked to Peaches. I've been trying to get a hold of her for months now. Uh, but um, she, yeah. I guess she found her on the floor and was non-responsive and called the police. And uh, it appears she had to, she had to leave the hotel room because it was considered a, a, a crime scene because anytime that a human body is at least here in the United States, if you don't die at home, they're going to, they do an investigation. So if you, if you die anywhere outside of your home, there's some kind of investigation and most likely an autopsy, but they didn't find any um, foul play. So they assume that, you know, we'll probably figure something out. Who knows what it could be. I don't want to speculate, but it, you know, embolism, heart attack, something. We don't but know. it's interesting that it was considered a crime scene. So like the London police probably sat peaches down. Mm. I'm hoping it was in full drag. And they interrogated her. Who killed Hecklina? You know, and, I, and I'm just that wondering, it's like, she couldn't get her stuff for a week. I'm sure she was allowed to take some things out of the, uh, out of the place. That's the power of drag, that this horrible real-life scenario has, feels like, something right out of Peaches and Hecklina's shows. You know, this, for somebody who did so many outrageous things, to have... A, her death be a crime scene in a week before doing uh, this r- wickedly hilarious, outrageous show in London is as astounding, you know, and, and it's like, it's like uh, one of Peach's shows come to life. You hear this always, especially on the internet. It's like God gives his strongest soldiers the toughest battles, which is complete nonsense, you know, but at the same time, it's like Peach's, is somebody who is incredibly wise, incredibly strong, and well-prepared to deal with something so uh, difficult. And well, I'm really grateful that Peaches was there when it happened and, and you know, that was able to uh, deal with Hecalina's passing and, and make the right choices and, and be able to get Hecalina to her final resting place, wherever that may be. Mm. Whether they're throwing <laughs> her body into the volcano or or cremating her and putting her well she named herself after uh, mount hecla which is a a active volcano in iceland Mm -hmm. and then the the norse called it the gateway to hell so (laughs) (laughs) you know i think that's probably part of the reason why she chose it because like she felt you know it was really rad 90s you know fuck you kind of drag and so I don't know. It's just, it's all so heartbreaking and I'm, you know, it's, it's so sad. It's difficult, to talk, it's, it's difficult to talk about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Peaches was there f- for her friend. Cause they were, she was her best friend. Yeah, yeah. As far as I know, they were the best of friends. And so, you know, you don't want to have anybody to lose their best friend, but at least they were there, you know, in many ways when they needed them most. And that's, there's, there's a, there's a, I hope that she can find some solace in that. We uh, uh, first met Hecklina through, Actually, my friend Karen Lewis was like, she had seen uh, both Hecalina's shows, Tranny Shack at the Stud, and heard about Peaches Christ mm-hmm. doing Midnight Mass, and which was showing, you know, these wonderful films. And, and Karen was like, you got to talk to these queens. And so you got Hecalina on the podcast first. Yes. And then... But Steven Peterson got us in touch with, yes. uh, with Hecalina. So we interviewed and her Hecalina for the podcast. And Hecalina was like... What's a podcast? I don't know. This is 2006, right? <laughs> she had no idea. Nobody did. And, and you know, mean, the time nobody, had... nobody cared like about drag queens even. So we were like, you know, we're talking to Hecalina. Hecalina's not sure what's going on. She's not sure of why she's on the show. And we didn't know too much about Hecalina either, you know? No. So it was like kind of a, like a blind date that yeah. her fans and our fans were yeah. putting us together. No, no Instagram, no Facebook. There's like nothing. it wasn't no around. No social media. Yeah, it wasn't around. This was the, this was, this show was it. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, you know, we had a, a meet and greet in New York City, and I can't remember why we did one. And it went over so well that all the people in San Francisco were like, you guys got to come and, do a show and we'll get one at the stud because that was where they were doing Tranny Shack. Mm-hmm. And actually, there is a photo somewhere of JoJo and Hecalina together at Tranny Shack because our show, I believe, was on a Thursday night and JoJo and Sally were at- and Sally were at went to Tranny Shack mm-hmm. the day before. And so we were all expecting Hecalina to come and drag. You know, we were all in, dressed up. 
and and uh, to be part of our podcast. And she just showed up in like jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> well, she didn't know what was going on. She didn't think anybody was going to show up. Yeah. And, so yeah. She, and she literally said that to you. Like, I didn't get dressed up because I didn't think anybody was going to be here. And the place was full. Because it, was it was packed. Yeah. yeah. And, and everybody's like laughing at her and stuff. But you know what? She's such a hero. She's such an icon that no matter, this is somebody who didn't need to dress up in drag and could have had an amazing entertainment career. She dressed up in drag because she, it was funny and fun and wicked. And Hanklina's looks were, ran the gambit from booger queen to, she dressed up as a man for a lot of things, mm-hmm. uh, as a glamorous drag queen, as a, you know, kind of very similar to Lady Bunny's style, this, you know, big giant hair and big giant head mm-hmm. in a flowing 60s style dress. And at the time, like the 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 comedy duo of Peaches and Heclina really hadn't solidified very much. And so then later in the year in the coming years, Peaches and 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 Heclina really became this like dynamic duo and did all kinds of shows together with Rue Girls. And cast them, mm-hmm. and that became sort of what we know about them today. But you know, a lot of entertainers, a lot of celebrities got their start at Heclina's tranny shack mm-hmm. and back in the day before even before even Peaches Christ was a person you know mm-hmm. a, a, a existed. Heclina inspired so many people to go into recovery. Heclina was, in a lot of ways, a backbone to that community, and it's hard to imagine what it would be like without her. Mm. And I feel bad at the same time because, you know, Heclina was one of those people that we was always the butt of a lot of like that sarcastic, you know, wicked drag queen joke. She loved to be roasted. She loved to be roasted. Oh, and she's going to get roasted. Where? I don't know. At Fleischmann's <laughs> crematorium. That was the, that was the first uh, joke that you made. And I, I thought it was really fitting. And you, to this day, you're still a little uncomfortable. Making it's just, it, yeah. it's part of me is like, it's, it's too it's soon. soon, you know, it's that's just, the point of this yeah. humor is that it's, it's the sooner, mm-hmm. the better. Yeah. It's, it's meant to be dealing with mm-hmm. crisis. Mm-hmm. It's meant to heal. Yeah. Not to hurt. Mm-hmm. Now it may not be for everybody. No. And, you know, and heck Lena certainly, you know, rubs a lot of people mm-hmm. the wrong way. And, and with her, you know, wicked humor, but that's not for them. You know, we yeah. went to see the drag queens of comedy in Chicago. The, the Chicago comedy scene came out and saw uh, Heclina eating your ass out on stage <laughs> with peaches. And we knew some other people and they were like, that's not funny. And we were like, that's the most brilliant thing ever, you know. And what's a queer sensibility, right? And that's the thing. It's like, if you don't have that kind of experience to find this kind of humor funny, it's not going to be relevant to you. Mm. Humor is not universal. It is meant, it is very specific, I think. And it's great that we live in a culture that humor can reach across aisles and, and, and bring people together. And so I think about like, you know, Eddie Murphy's uh, 80s material, or, you know, I think about Wanda Sykes or, you know, Robin Williams. Uh, I mean, these comedians who just really mm-hmm. capture the zeitgeist mm-hmm. at the height of their careers. But that's, you know, really a, more about television mm-hmm. unifying American culture or homogenizing it than when we think about like the Chitlin circuit. We think about the queer circuits and all these kind of things where when taken out of context, mm-hmm. they don't make a lot of sense. Well, and also too, you know, as much as people disparaged Techly and kind of made fun of her and poked fun of her, she poked fun of herself, but there was really a lot of respect there for people mm-hmm. because she really did uplift so many people with with Tranny Shack and her nights. And, you know, even when the word, you know, and she, you can go back and listen to old podcasts where we talk about the name change from Tranny Shack to, to Mother. Um, I don't think she had actually said what the name of the show was going to be, but she talked about how she was going to end the name because, you know, at first Tranny was a fun word that people used within the community then it reached outside of the community and then it became a very negative word. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of people that were like, you will take this word from my cold dead hand hands you know and then but she was just like you know i understand people are hurt by this word so i just don't even want to use it anymore it's not like i mean if i could use it i would use it 
but I don't want to because like it hurts people. And I, I, I want to welcome people and I want to be a welcoming kind of thing. And, you know, it's a smart move and it's, it's also a respectful and it's a kind, a kind yeah. way to move around in the world. Whereas like some people, you know, they were just like, they were clinging onto that word as though it was like, they like it was their, you know, their, their, their name or something. Well, it, it is somebody who they felt was an outsider mm-hmm. coming into their space and asking them to change to accommodate them. Mm-hmm. And I can understand why they would at on a surface have a negative reaction to it. But at the same time, you know, transgender people have always been a part of drag. Yeah. Um, a lot of trans people discover their trans through drag and a lot of, to in the past and especially today, um, trans people turn to drag as a way of funding and, and gaining safety mm-hmm. to to embody the gender yeah. that they're born mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. What I also respected about her, too, is that she <laughs> of Heclina. Heclina is yeah. she could put on a just be her butch man self. Yeah. Just put a wig on. Just a wig and a little bit of makeup, slap up a Craigslist ad and have men come over because they wanted to be like pleasured by a woman. <laughs> and that was woman enough for some men. Uh, a little bit of lipstick and a wig. Lady Bunny loves to tell this story. And part of it is because Lady Bunny loved to roast Heclina. Mm-hmm. And she said this one story that Heclina, after she had done Golden Girls, dressed up as B. Arthur, went to a gay sex club. In full drag as B. Arthur. And I imagine she probably got some action. How would they even let her in? They wouldn't let you in at Steamworks. No, no, no. You couldn't do that. No. But, you know, in other cities and mm-hmm. other places, sure, why not? I think <laughs> it was a, probably like a private sex club. And everybody talks about yeah. her laugh. <laughs> and if you could get a laugh out of her, it was it was something. So, you know, we did the podcast with her. I felt like we knew her a little bit. Yeah. We did the show with her. And then she's just like, hey, before you leave from San Francisco, I want to have lunch with you guys. And we're like, all right. So we go and we meet her for lunch. We're sitting there having lunch. And then she has this little pendant around her neck and she unscrews it opens up takes some pills and she looks at me and she goes what kind of aids me- aids medication do you take and i just kind of like looked at her because i didn't know what she was doing and i was just like i take a little pill called prevention <laughs> you know and then she just i was like and at first i was like i don't know how she's gonna react and then she just paused for a second and then all of a sudden that big booming laugh like and it went on for like a minute and i was just like is this really happening? Well, you and feel this like is before you, prep. This was even yeah. before prep was even an idea. So what what do you mean by prevention? I, I, I don't know, because it was just kind of, I don't know. Well, so you're just putting on a spot. You're like, you know, uh, <laughs> you know sometimes you just got to come up with something quick to say. You don't know. And sometimes it lands, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about if you could make someone like Hecalina laugh, you feel like you got a big reward from mm-hmm. it. So. Heclina was one of those friends, especially for all her close friends in San Francisco, where it created this environment where everybody was trying to be their best because it brought pleasure to them to please their friends, Mm. you know, and and it was a non-competitive space. It was a cooperative space. It was a space of love and celebration of life. And, you know, so today uh, when they uh, said that the Castro Theater, they're having a memorial service for Heclina and so many people wanted to go that they had to limit the the seating right the amount of people that could go so they put tickets on Eventbrite that were free and they filled sold out in 30 minutes and everyone's like (gasps) they're like surprised Pikachu face they're just like I feel bad because a lot of people who, you know, were part of that scene may not be able to go to her memorial service. Well, they might do something else, too. I And I, I yeah. with Jojo, we had this memorial, but there probably will be some kind of celebration of life or a festival or something that people can do sometime in the summer that might be able to encapsulate or bring more people together than just that limited kind of space. Yeah. And, you know, it's super unfortunate. A lot of people are just are, are upset that they, they they can't get in. But, you know. I don't know what's happening. Like, did all the tickets get sold? Or did the, did it break the machine? You know, is it Are there Taylor scalpers? Swift? Kind of? They're scalpers. There are so many people standing out. Get your tickets to Heckling's memorial service. $400. 
and it's $500. And maybe some of those tech people might buy it. I don't know. But, um, you know, maybe they'll live stream it so that that can give people some I'm sure some they'll solace. live three, stream that, mm-hmm. sure. You know, and, and it makes me think of uh, uh, Jim Henson's mm-hmm. um, funeral service mm-hmm. where all the people from Sesame Street brought those beautiful mm-hmm. Muppets mm-hmm. and and sang from their hearts while their yeah. voices are breaking. I imagine that that event is going to be very similar to that. And, you know, this is going to happen on May 23rd. But, I, you know, I encourage, you know, Heckelina's close friends and family and and those if they can do something. And they probably already are scheduling something private that's that's smaller amongst yourselves, uh, because it's it's a that's a long time to wait to grieve publicly, to to wait like almost, you know, a month, almost two months. I tell you, you I was in in a huge I've been in a huge depression. Um, and I, you know, it, we're dealing with a lot, you know, it's like, and you know, for listeners of the podcast, like I, I had skin cancer on my right shoulder that required surgery and, and it left a giant scar to this day. I'm like really, uh, and you know, there, when you have the giant scar from on your body, that's, that is the result of something that you just didn't want to happen because of illness, it, it really puts you at odds with your body and uh, against your body. And, you know, the bodybuilding for me and doing this contest was, has been a result of a lifelong dream and, and getting to that point and training to that, to get to that point. And then imagine the news that just like at the same time, the biopsy of this new mole came back positive. And so my cancer's back. And I'm just like, I was just like devastated and, you know, we also had this election that Chicago could have fallen into Betsy DeVos's hands mm-hmm. to this really conservative Democrat who bragged about saying he was a Republican. And he had talked about, like, hiring more police and all this just nonsense. And making it seem as though the Chicago's teachers union was the most evil thing on the planet. It was just, yeah, ooh, let's be <laughs> we're scared of teachers. And, you know, and and, and then. Part of it is like the clouds started lifting on, I believe it was on Tuesday, the day of the election. You know, Heckelina died on Monday and the election was on Tuesday. And Wisconsin Supreme Court went back to, you know, progressives. Mm-hmm. Chicago mayor. Let's go, Brandon. We have a progressive mayor. We, we have, have not had a progressive mayor in a very, very long time. Since Harold Washington. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go, Brandon. Reclaim that one. (laughs) Let's go, Brandon. (laughs) We don't need that. We don't need that. But, you know, our friend Andy Thayer, who follows Chicago politics, he's just like he believes that this is a direct result of the Black Lives Matter movement, that these people, he's a black man and he was involved in the community and people organized around Black Lives Matter. And so, yes, we were fighting uh, for, uh, you know, equality and for the better treatment of, of black people uh, in regards to policing. And this came from that. And so it's nice to see an actionable change. And, and, you know, listen, the Betsy DeVos ain't gone nowhere. No. She's still that said she's still she, no. the wolves are standing outside the gates drooling. Well, and they just had a drag march in San Francisco recently, you know, uh, you know, and I, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of that was elevated because of the presence of, you know, the great drag people in in San Francisco. Right. But also, you know, probably people were very much mobilized because of Heckling's death. Oh, absolutely. And, and so yeah. it's it's wonderful to see those people turn out. And so, you know, what Chicago's done because of the BLM is I'm hoping that uh, because of these drag marches we can do in other places, you know, Florida Equality. Florida just issued an advisory warning for LGBTQ travelers or people who are considering moving to Florida. They're like, be careful. The NAACP also issued something like that for black people recently for Florida. And so, you know, you've got queer people and black people saying, hey, Florida's fucked up. You know, this, the nation's got to pull together and figure this shit out. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the black lawmakers uh, in Tennessee that were kicked out for speaking mm-hmm. out against gun violence, uh, mm-hmm. Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, mm-hmm. uh, Gloria Johnson, who's not black. She was not kicked out. Right. They've just been reinstated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's it to me, it's like there's a lot of sadness and a lot of hope mm-hmm. as well. And, and, you know, as. Harvey Milk says you got to you got to look for the hope. You know, Fre- uh, Fred Rogers, you got to look for the helpers. You got to look for mm-hmm. the drag queens, 
the the rebels, mm-hmm. the the countercultural yeah. club kids, the weirdos, mm-hmm. the, the well, yeah, oddballs. And, and you know, like Billy Porter is set to play novelist, activist, and essayist uh, James Baldwin in an upcoming film, and that, I hope that can inspire people because like so much of like um, what we think about is inspired by James Baldwin, especially when it comes to race and and, and queerness. I mean, if you read the book the velvet rage i'm i'm pretty sure uh, you know which deals with people's like uh, uh, gay men's typically rage about being disenfranchised and they expect to uh, uh even though they might be white or privileged uh being gay sets them back and they kind of tra- turns them into rage machines uh i attribute that back to a, a quote from james baldwin about uh, you know that kind of the thing. job of an uh, artist yeah the job of an artist and also too but like uh white men and and, and racism and so it'll be interesting to see you know billy embody that and bring that forward James Baldwin said, the role of an artist is exactly the same as the role of a lover. If I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you can't see. Ooh. And, you know, Madonna certainly and Madame X starts off a show with, you know, the job of an artist. Uh, James Baldwin wrote a lot about that. And James Baldwin influenced so many queer gay writers in the United States including Terrence McNally, who influenced my mother, who said to me, the job of an artist is to reflect back upon Mm -hmm. society the things they can't see. Mm. You know, so my mother doesn't even realize she's quoting James Baldwin when she (laughs) says those things. Here's a quote about James Baldwin, about white gay men. I think uh, white gay men feel cheated because they were born in principle into society in which they were supposed to be safe. The anomaly of their sexuality puts them in danger unexpectedly. Their reaction seems to be in direct proportion to the sense of feeling cheated of the advantages which accrue to white people in a white society. There's an element, and it has always seemed to me, of bewilderment and complaint. Now, that may sound very harsh, but the gay world as such is no more prepared to accept black people than anywhere else in society. It's a very hermetically sealed world with very unattractive features, including racism. Now, granted, I think over time, since he's, it's gotten better in the queer community, because like if you're in an interracial relationship, you're more likely to be queer. Um, so I think part of it is like, you know, when you're marginalized, when you've suffered, you <laughs> expect other people to understand your suffering. Mm. You know, it's back to that biblical, the, the f- bogus bullshit biblical quote that doesn't really exist that God gives his strongest soldiers, the toughest battles. But I think part of that is, and what James Baldwin is trying to tell us is that, you know, we can't overcome adversity without coming together as community. Mm. And that's true all across all kinds of faiths and philosophies is overcoming pain and suffering doesn't happen alone. It has to happen by coming together in a memorial, in sitting down and remembering these people and telling their stories. Because only when we do that, they continue to live. Mm. And it's so gratifying to me that over 18 years that we've been able to do this podcast and be able to tell a little bit of Jojo and Heclina and so many wonderful queer people's stories on the show. Mm. And we will continue to do so because... Damn it. If we don't do it, who will? <laughs> well, actually, a lot of people are doing it. Yeah. And that's that's so beautiful is that, you know, wh- one day you and I will be gone and someone will be lamenting our loss. Maybe they'll be like relieved in our loss or saddened by it or indifferent to it. But we live in every podcast that is out there that in some ways is a cousin or a descendant of what we have done here. Mm. And I'm deeply humbled and, and deeply moved every time I you know, open up a podcast directory and I think about all the Heclina's podcast and RuPaul's podcast and Peaches's podcast and all these shows that happened because we made a difference. Mm. You guys made a difference by... Mm-hmm. By being here and supporting and listening and just enjoying what we've done for 18 years, we were able to be a part of this world and and leave our mark on it forever, permanently. And because of the support of people that listened and shared the show. Yeah. And and showed up and said, hey, you know, book this guest. I think this person would be interesting to have on the show. Will you guys please talk about this? I love that. I love that feedback. 
Yeah. And I love your donations at feastoffun.com slash donate. <laughs> I don't want to be like, no. you know, someone's dead. Oh, give us the no. money. But, you know. Well, we do it on every show. But I tell you, I, I got the bill today for my cancer and I was like it was like $4,435 and 6 cents and that's with insurance that's with insurance and I was like motherfucker what's the 6 cents for <laughs> could you round it off uh, the 6 cents is just a little extra uh, fuck you it's a fuck you <laughs> <laughs> I was just like well I guess I'll be doing a crowdfunding campaign myself yeah. oh it's just it, you know it's it's just but at the same time, there is so much hope. There's so amazing mm. things. But Spring is here. The flowers are blooming. New generations, new voices are coming. Metacruz in the parks. They're out and about. Things yeah. are happening. And, and you can dress up in drag and, or, or give a drag queen a dollar. Give her $100, you know? Make them feel rich for a day. We got to make these lawmakers eat it. Eat all the makeup, all the drag, all the wigs. <laughs> Just shove that feather boa down their throat and be like, we are not going anywhere. That's right, baby. And you know, it was also I was uh, talking to a person who was just like, well, why do these drag queens have to be around these kids anyway and read it, whatever? First of all, it's not happening that often. But also, you're like, look at the audience. Who's the audience? The little queer kids. They're queer parents with little baby, with little kids that they want to say, hey, this is a drag queen. This is our culture this is our people this is how we do things and 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 all these people come you're not gonna do that you can't do that no get out of here this is our party uh, i want to leave people with this uh, i've heard so many people say this but it's worth saying again a fight for trans rights is a fight for everyone because only when we live in a world where trans people are safe and loved that everybody is safe and loved. Mm -hmm. And that only happens when we speak up and tell our stories and fearlessly be ourselves, whether it's a, you know, a booger queen <laughs> or a or majestic princess, mm -hmm. uh, everyday humble servant or war, a gender warrior. Um, whoever you are is beautiful because you are worthy of being loved unconditionally by being you. And I'm glad that you're here with me, Mark. I'm glad to be here, too. Yeah. Together, we can do a lot. Now, hopefully, you listen, don't let this uh, this cancer take you down. You need you, I need you to do uh, some more voice editing. <laughs> <laughs> Got to put out some more podcasts before you It didn't you kill up. you. It just pissed you, you off. off. <laughs> no, I love you, and I love doing this podcast, and I love the people that it's brought into our lives. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.